You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking that you will be with us during this hour and this afternoon, that you would show me what to share and how, that you'd speak through me and more particularly speak to those who are here. I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. I was on my mountain looking out a large glass window. And when I say my mountain, I don't mean I owned it. I just mean that's where I spent a lot of time. Looking out a large glass window, and I saw a troop of monkeys moving from our banana orchard to the jungle. Probably their bellies were all full. And you might not know this about monkeys, but they prefer green bananas. Uh, and so if you wait till your bananas are ripe, you just, you know, that's not going to work out. And anyway, so there they were going. When monkeys are going from our banana orchard to the jungle, they have to go on the ground because that's the only option. And they tend on the ground to be much more organized than in the trees. On the ground, they go single file and they're about equidistant, kind of like soldiers. Monkey, 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 monkey. And there was one of them that was far, beyond, far behind the others. He was the slow one. He was the obese one. I don't really mean he was, but I mean, for some reason, he just wasn't with it. He wasn't paying enough attention. And when all the other monkeys were up in the tree, let me get out of the way of these people so they feel comfortable coming in. When, when all the monkeys were up in the tree, he was still two or three, we're in America, it's yards here, yards from the tree. And that's when I saw Jackie. Jackie is one of our mountain dogs. Jackie's a boy, and I don't know whoever named him Jackie, but he is a boy that loves to eat monkey, and rarely does he ever see a monkey on the ground. And when he came around the corner and he saw that monkey, Jackie was excited. He didn't bark, he didn't growl, he just sprinted. And that monkey wasn't paying attention, so the monkey really didn't see Jackie. If the monkey is that trash can, Jackie was this close before the monkey saw him. And at the rate Jackie was going, that is much less than a second. That's like no time at all to finish that. And uh, Jackie bit that monkey. And I thought I was going to see a monkey die. But then I saw the strangest thing. Jackie looked up. And so I looked up, and they were underneath the tree where the monkeys had gone up. All the monkeys were dropping down as fast as they could. The entire troop was coming to the ground like, like, like falling like water. And Jackie let go of that monkey, and he put his tail between his legs and ran away. Because Jackie against one monkey, Jackie wins. Jackie against 20 monkeys, monkeys win. So that's a real story. Now I'm going to tell you the fake version of that story. That was real. The next is imaginary. I want you to imagine that you are in the troop of monkeys and that all of you managed to get up in the tree. 
and you're up there when you see Jackie come around the corner of the building and you say, this is bad. I don't want to watch. Why is, why is that monkey so slow? Why wasn't he paying attention? He's probably going to die. And then I could say to you, I'm so glad I'm up here in the tree. Aren't you glad you're in the tree? You know it's safe up here where we are? Dogs can't climb trees. What happens if we talk that way? What's going to happen to the monkey on the ground? Yeah, he's going to die. And you know how we're going to feel about it. We're going to feel like it's sad and shameful, but it's sort of what he sort of had it coming. That's how we're going to feel about it, right? I mean, it's his fault, isn't it? That he should have been paying attention. It, I didn't make any mistake that caused him to be bitten. Do you have your Bibles with you? Look at Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Welcome. We're in Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 5. Galatians 6 verse 5 says, For each one shall bear his own load. That verse says that it's your job and my job to be in the tree. I know that doesn't make any sense to you right now. Just, just, just maybe it will later. But it's our job to be in the tree. Our job is to get there and to be safe and to do the right thing. But look back at verse 2. Bear, what does it say? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That verse says it's our job to get out of the tree. It's our job. When my wife and I were church planting in Arkansas, well, my, life has, my life is one continuous series of unexpected, interesting events. And uh, when I finally got married, which was a bit late in life, uh, I was in my 30s. I had been, um, you know, I'd been living by myself or with men for my entire adult life at that point. And I went in just from marriage day, when Heidi and I moved into our home together, I went from being a man with no woman in my life to having two ladies and four children in one week. Because someone that was very close to Heidi, her husband left her for a teenage girl, uh, the, the father of her four children, and Heidi and I invited her to come live with us, this mother with her four children. And she did. And while she was with us for a few months, she quit drinking and quit smoking and began to keep Sabbath and adopted a lot of Adventist ideals and goals and was baptized and became a Seventh-day Adventist. And then she moved out into her own apartment with the help of the government and, uh, and she began doing home care, you know, the taking care of elderly and sickly people. And she fell in love with one of the sons of a lady that she was caring for that way. 
He wasn't an Adventist. He was hardly a believer. And she married him. I'm skipping all kinds of efforts I made to prevent that. You know, and, uh, She married him. And when she did, she stopped attending church. And even today, like, like 13 years later, she still isn't attending church. But if you met her today, she would say she's a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm, I, I know, because I've seen her even in the last year. And uh, when, when she stopped attending church, the head elder called her and he wanted to visit with her. You know, I think some of you are head elders and you would do the same thing. And she would always say, I'm sorry, it's not a good time, I'm busy, not today, maybe later. But it was always that, that way. And if you're the elder calling and, there, and there's always reasons, you know really the thing is she doesn't want to see you, right? Don't you, don't you know that's the real thing? And the pastor tried calling and it was always a bad time and she didn't want to... It, anyway, and so they never did visit her because she never did welcome it. It was interesting to me years later when Heidi and I were back in that area. Welcome to you all. We were back in that area and we visited her. And she said to us, speaking about that event, you know, when I stopped attending church, no one ever visited me. Well, we can fault her if we want, but what I'm trying to say to you is don't call, just go. That's what I'm trying to say. Don't call, just go. Just get down from the tree and go. That verse that says, resist the devil and he will, also works if we all come down the tree at the same time. What's really tempting for us when someone makes a big mistake is to gab about it. You know, to talk. And in Michigan, which has a reputation as being one of the more principled parts of the North American Adventism. You have a reputation that way, you know. This is one of the more principled parts, the way La Sierra is one of the less principled parts. Kind of like that. Well, when you're in a more principled part, it's, it's particularly tempting to talk about the monkeys that are on the ground getting bitten. Because there really is no reason in Michigan to get bit. Does anyone understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, out of the tree we go. That's the children's story, but now that's story for adults. I, because of COVID, was stuck in South Africa, away from my students, away from people I planned to minister to. And But there were, at least for two weeks in South Africa, there were people I could minister to. I ended up speaking to a ministerial conference. They had invited me to speak at that conference as the early morning devotional, which is code for not important in most conferences. <laughs> and uh, that had been the, the plan there. But what had happened is COVID had stopped one of the seminary professors from Andrews from coming. He couldn't come. And so they asked me to take his place because I couldn't leave, you know? So it, 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 was, it, it worked out kind of that way. And uh, so for, I got to speak to all these ministers and maybe I'll tell you more about that someday, but not right now. But after that conference was done, 
I was stuck in a home with a family for almost three months. And if you're used to like speaking to groups and witnessing in supermarkets and, and speaking to students, and you know, that limits a bit your style. And, uh, and I really got into Facebook uh, outreach and uh, welcome. If you're in the Philippines, you'd be the first ones here. Maybe. So while I was there, I uh, decided to look on Facebook for people, Muslims, you can, you can tell them by their names, you know. Uh, that most Muslims you can tell by the, lots of Zs in, in those names. I was looking for someone that I could write to that was, had some nobility, and I found a guy named Sajad. Now, if he was right here, he'd probably say his name was so different than that, but it's S-A-J-J-A-D, and I say Sajad, and you can just say whatever you like. I began to write to him to share with him some gospel ideas in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. You know, within 48 hours, Sajad told me that he thinks maybe he'll become a Christian. He lives 90 miles south of Baghdad in an area where he's never likely to encounter a Christian. And uh, right now he's working with me writing in Arabic book reports on the Great Controversy, Desire of Ages, Patriarchs and Prophets, Acts of the Apostles. That It might be different for you, but the book that really impressed him deepest was Patriarchs and Prophets. It was the second one he wrote. I remember the day he wrote me and said that he never knew that small sins were so terrible. The story of Eve and the tree just really convicted him to just turn away from every small sin because, you know, they're so terrible. Sajad is a missionary-minded believer, a Seventh-day Adventist, who probably won't be baptized ever unless he baptizes himself. How in the world did I find him? That's a miracle. It's not like every person in that city is seeking for the gospel. It's not like I have time to write to 100,000 people to find him. But God had the one in 100,000 be the one that I wrote to. What I'm trying to say to you by way of illustration is that the closed countries of the world, a large number of them use Facebook. If you don't use Facebook, don't start on account of this. But if you do, and even if you don't, you, if you use Google, you can find uh, websites related to the universities in those closed countries. It's possible for you to interact with people in closed countries. We live in an age when you can interact with people in closed countries. And if you do, they get a chance. And if you don't, well, I just don't know if they're going to get a chance. There. That's the story for you. Today we're talking about authority. Authority is a big part of the religious liberty issue. 
And when you understand the principle of authority, it's much easier to think through the complicated specifics we mentioned yesterday afternoon about what are the limits. So let me give you the, the big idea that we're building on, and that is that when God gives you a responsibility, he always gives you sufficient authority to carry out the responsibility. I'll say it again and then illustrate it lots of times. When God gives me a responsibility, he always gives me sufficient authority to carry out my responsibility. If you understand this idea, you'll see, parents, that's why you have authority over your children. Why do you have authority over your children? It's because you have a responsibility, and God gives you enough authority to carry out your responsibility. As your responsibility becomes less, your authority also decreases at the same time. And when they become old enough to be responsible for themselves, your authority over them changes completely. Yet, what does God give you? He gives you authority not because you are so capable, but he gives it to you because you need it to carry your responsibilities. So God gives men a responsibility to be the husbands, the house bands, to care for the home. That's why he gives them authority. That's why the Bible says, uh, uh, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Peter says that. It's not because men are brighter. It's because men have responsibility. And it wouldn't be right for God to give responsibility if he didn't give sufficient authority to carry out the responsibility. This is why we need to pay taxes. Because God has given the government some responsibilities and those responsibilities include repressing evil and defending against hostile governments. That's a huge job that God gave the government. It requires a lot of resources. So if he's going to give that responsibility, he has to give the government enough authority to carry out that responsibility. So the government certainly has authority to collect taxes. It wouldn't be fair for God to ask the government to take care of us that way and not authorize them to collect money. Can you see that, how they go together? Authority and responsibility go together like that always. This is why the church has authority. Because the church has responsibilities. And if you understand this principle, then it can really help you when authorities end up contradicting each other. Let me give an example. You can see it. Suppose the government says to your 18-year-old son, that he must register for the draft, and in fact, he is drafted and must come to the military, and you, as his mother or father, say to him, you must not. Now he has two authorities in his life that are contradicting themselves, each other, I mean, and he really can't obey both. You see, he can't obey both. He can't obey the government, and he can't obey you at the same time. What does the principle say? The principle says that you as a parent have as much responsibility, I mean, you have enough authority to carry out your responsibility. At that age, your, your authority is to teach, and you have, that's what you have, responsibility and authority to teach. But the government is responsible to defend against aggressive nations. And to do that, they need a military. So they have authority to raise a military. So they have authority to draft your son. 
even though you don't like it. What about the church? Some of you are pastors, and I think hopefully that this won't be a new idea to you, but it seems to be new to many pastors in Asia. Pastors, God has not made you responsible for the individual decisions of your church members. He hasn't made you responsible for the decisions of your church board. He hasn't made you responsible for the how your church board spends its money or uses the sanctuary. The responsibility God has given pastors is to regulate the teaching of the church. And it really, that responsibility isn't given to the paid pastor only. It's to the elders, both the local and the, the paid. It's to the elders of the church they have responsibility to guard the teaching of the church. It's not their responsibility to do all the teaching of the church. They could do that. This is why I don't mind at all when a church asks a lady to preach. I understand it to work this way, that God gave the leadership of the church to the elders. The elders should be men. He gave the leadership of the church to the elders with the responsibility to guard the teaching of the church. And how do they guard it? They decide who can and who cannot teach in church. They don't decide who can and who cannot teach in their private homes. If I'm a minister and I think that you're a heretic in my congregation, I cannot refuse, I cannot tell you that you are forbidden to have a Bible study in your house. I don't have any authority over your house. I can say to you, I think you're a dangerous teacher. I can say that I'm going to warn people not to go to your house for Bible study because I have a responsibility to teach. But I can't forbid you to do it, no matter how dangerous I think you are, because God didn't give me responsibility that extends that far, so my authority doesn't extend that far. But there are many persons who, as soon as they're employed as pastors, seem to think that they have something like kingly authority on the local level. Authority to forbid, to tell what can and what can't happen, where it can be, when it can be, how it can be. And what I would say to them, I wouldn't say you're evil for trying that. I would say that you're misinformed about your authority. You don't understand what God has, the responsibility he's given you, and you're trying to carry out a responsibility he never has given you. All right, let's me just see. How many of you are pastors? Can I see your hands? Pastors here. I'll only see, like, maybe, are you a pastor? No, you're not a pastor. You're a dentist. Yeah, a PK. All right, so two here. So the two who are here, would you say I'm telling you the truth, or does it sound like I'm going over the top and saying something that's not true? What do you think, sir? True? Okay, good. All right. I just wanted to have you do it right now instead of after I leave to, to say the guy was off the wall and, you know, give me a chance to defend myself. And so I'm not going to ask you, Dan. I figure you agree with me. That's it. Yeah, I figure. Um, authority. Well, in the Bible, we're told to obey four different entities that I've been mentioning. Children are told to obey their parents. Ephesians 6, right? Children, obey your parents. And we're told in Romans 13 to obey the government. 
And we're told in 1 Peter that wives should obey their husbands. And let's look at one. Let's look at Hebrews 13. Now, the way you looked, you maybe also want to see that one in Peter. But let, right now, let's go to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, we want to see what it says about church authority. Hebrews 13, we'll start in verse 7 and then we'll go to verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Verse 7 matches what we think. Verse 17 doesn't. So we'll just get 7 first. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken to the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. The only word in verse 7 that strikes us badly is the word rule. Everything else looks good in that verse. So what do the rulers do in verse 7? They teach you the word of God and they live pretty well. Ideally, that's what it says, right? They teach you the word of God and they live well. If you know a minister that skips either one of those, you might show him this verse. Because for sure, that should be, that should be the baseline for ministers. To preach the word of God and to live well. And then you ought to imitate him. That's what it says, right? His faith follow. Now look at verse 17. Obey those who have the rule over you and be submissive. That is the part that strikes us ill, but I think you'll see the principle I'm teaching in the next part of the verse. For they watch out for your souls as they that must what? So that means they have responsibility. Do you see the logic in verse 17? It says they have responsibility, therefore they have authority. It says they have responsibility, therefore they have what? Authority, you ought to obey them. But it's implied that you ought to obey them in those things that relate to their responsibility. Let them do so, it says, that is give account. Let them give account with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So what is the authority of the elders? They have authority to teach. They don't have authority to tell you what to believe. There's a difference in the two. I believe that I, well, I'm a local elder. I was ordained as a local elder many years ago. And as far as I can understand in the Bible, that is the same church position as a minister who's been ordained to the gospel ministry. They're different in some regards in the level of authority in our church, but in the Bible, it's the same business. So I have a responsibility to teach. I have authority to teach. But it doesn't mean that I'm inspired, which means you can't be responsible to believe me. The authority God gives me to teach does not give me authority to demand your conformity to my opinions. I can't hold you accountable for disagreeing with me. I can't say that opinion can't be shared in this church. I can, with the other elders, say that you aren't going to have a teaching position in this church because of your opinion. That is, we have responsibility to guard the official teaching of the church, 
but we don't have responsibility to guard the opinions of the church members. Uh, we have responsibility also to guard the integrity teaching of the church. So if someone begins teaching that Sunday is the sacred day, then we actually, after some work, we might even remove that person from fellowship. But that would be, that's not the responsibility of me as an elder, that's the responsibility of the entire church. The entire church has a responsibility to guard its doctrinal integrity as a body. And so we put away open sinners and doctrinally dangerous individuals as a body. I've said the same thing about 15 times. Let me see if any of you have questions about it. Does anyone have any questions about this idea of authority? I'll give you, go ahead. Yeah, you said that uh, elders should be men, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that was. Like, oh no, <laughs> just, can you, does he, is he really going to say that in this place? <laughs> so I don't want to spend the whole period on this topic, but I get, if you wonder where I get the silly idea, It'd be from 1 Timothy, let's just turn there just for a minute. It won't be for 10, I promise. I mean, can I promise that? I, I think. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse, well, you could look all the way from verse 2 to verse 16, but I'm not going to take you all the way there. Or even one, actually the whole chapter you could look at. But um, look at verse 4. The quality of uh, an elder. One who rules his own house well, having his children in subjection with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? The logic in these two verses is that your home is practice for the bigger responsibility of church. And in the home, if a man is not doing his priestly duties there appropriately or successfully, then he shouldn't be given the larger responsibilities of attempting that on the larger scale of a church. And I think probably all of you know, please don't say names, of persons who would who take church responsibilities, but have not been very successful right here. Wouldn't you all know people like that? Not very successful right here. In fact, I, whenever I meet someone who has like three or four adult children that are in the, operating in the fear of the Lord, I just always like put my hat off to them and just really commend them as very successful people. I think that is just the ultimate success. So... If you do want to see why I think that, if you do a Google search for Eugene Pruitt Women's Ordination, you'll find a book that I wrote on the topic, and you can just read the whole book and write me a whole book back, and, I'll, and if it's less than 50 pages, I'll read it. <laughs> so you're taking that not only like it from the ministry, you're taking that to the elder level. I think in the Bible it's the same thing. I think in the Bible there are two groups of elders in the Bible, the ones that have full-time secular jobs and those that have full-time ministry jobs. And what the Bible says about the second group is that they're worthy of double honor. And in that context, honor is pay. And uh, so people who give their full time to the work of ministry, they ought to be paid that way. 
but those who do it while they're carrying on their other business, they should earn their money in the other business. But in terms of authority of the church, when the church was growing very fast in the book of Acts, it grew into new cities, and you could have a new church planted in a matter of weeks or months. You really, in that church, there's not enough ministers in the world to put a, a paid, experienced, trained person in all those churches. They don't, they're not around. The church is brand new. So what Paul said is, ordain elders in every city. That means from among these brand new baby Christians. Like I think if I asked here, who here has been uh, a Christian for less than two years? And if some people raised their hand, we would all sort of think, oh, they're new Christians. But those were the old Christians in the book of Acts. And uh, they, it wasn't a good time for many of them to become full-time workers. They needed to carry on their secular business and grow and learn and grow and learn until they had enough wherewithal to be like Timothy, traveling elders, the ones that could oversee and be over others. Yeah, that's how I understand it. But if you understand differently, I'm not angry with you. Are you angry with me? <laughs> Romans 13, we're going to look at verse 1. We looked at Romans 14 yesterday, and Romans 13 is related. Let every soul be subject to the governing authority. The King James has a nice word there. It says higher, right? So the higher authority, is that what it says? The higher powers. For there is no authority except from God. What a strange statement. I mean, to us. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Republicans agreed with that a year ago, but not today. And Democrats agree with it today, but not a year ago. But it's true both times. Have you read it there in Daniel 4? Where it says that, God appoints over the kingdoms, is 417, over the kingdoms of men whom he will, and he puts over them the basest of men. Yeah, that's what it says. That is, Daniel 4 doesn't say that God is the one who puts in the Abraham Lincolns and then Satan puts in the Stalins. That's not what it says. It says God is the one who, well, it's just what it says here, the authorities that be are ordained of God. He puts them in positions. And some of you might be thinking, no, no, that can't be true. God can't do that. He can't put in a terrible ruler. Oh, but just listen to me for a moment. When communism fell in Russia, excuse me, in Romania, after many years of the very worst persecution in Europe, when a thousand people volunteered to be on the committee of riflemen that were going to execute the dictator and his wife because of the hardship that they had caused in that country. When for decades the Adventists had been imprisoned and many times tortured, severely repressed, and followed and spied on and treated so badly, when communism broke, there were more Adventists in Romania than in Germany and France and England and Switzerland and Sweden and Finland and Portugal and Spain and Italy combined. That is, 
you might think that having a bad ruler is bad for the salvation of the people. You remember Hurricane Katrina? Most of you have enough hair to remember that. I mean, gray hair is what I meant to say. Hurricane Katrina, the one that came to New Orleans. In 1993, I led a team of canvassers in New Orleans. Uh, Chester Van Clark III, who you might know, was one of the, he was one of the students in that program. Dr. Joe Kim from Yakima, Washington, was one of the students in that program. Christine Bothney Neal was one of the students in that program. And anyway, you might know a lot. Manny Emmanuel Beck was one of the students in that program. A lot of kids in that program ended up becoming responsible people at some point. But at that point, they were 17, 18 years old, and they were just children. And we went down there to New Orleans, and it was hard. New Orleans was harder than any place we'd worked that summer. There was just a lot of secular Catholicism there, like dead-in-the-water traditionalism, and it was tough. After Hurricane Katrina, I took another group to New Orleans, and it had become like the Bible Belt. It was very easy to sell books. The people loved the spiritual books. It was just wonderful how they were searching. So granted, a few thousand people died in the hurricane, but it looks like to me it was the best thing that ever happened to that city. I'm trying to illustrate an idea to you. I'm trying to illustrate that when God puts base men over governments, he often does that as a judgment on them for their wickedness. He often gives us as a people, a, he gives us heads of state and heads of states. He gives us persons that match our deserts, like what we deserve. He judges us on the basis of our corporate responsibility, and he often does give evil rulers to people. But don't you think for a minute that that means that it's harder for them to get to heaven. When Daubigny was writing about the Reformation of Europe, he brought up, brought up this point. He said that the Reformation really took off in Germany and in Sweden, uh, those became Protestant nations. So did Switzerland become a Protestant nation. France, on the other hand, persecuted mercilessly the Reformation. France never became a Protestant nation. So that after some decades, the French believers felt like they were way behind the other nations. Way behind. But if you look in the resurrection, I think you'll see far more Frenchmen being resurrected than Germans. They were killed, but they weren't lost. You understand the difference? They died, but they weren't destroyed. So, yeah, God... Anyway, I'm just trying to illustrate... I'm trying to help you believe what it says in verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the higher authorities... For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. I don't understand that necessarily like this, that God chooses every man that has a position of authority personally, but that God permits the choice of every man directly. Do you know what, what Solomon says about kings? 
He says that the heart of the king is in the hand of God. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he will. I understand that this way, that when you pray for kings and all those that are in authority, that you might live a peaceable and, uh, what's the other word, what kind of life? Peaceable and something life, quiet life. When you pray for that, God can answer that prayer. That is, you might think that the heart of the king is hands off for God, that the king makes his own decisions about everything. But it looks to me quite different that as soon as you make yourself responsible as a king, that God reserves the right and answer to prayer to change your thinking. To change your thinking, not regarding your own decisions, but regarding the people that you're responsible for. So I, I think, if I could give the example, that Bill Clinton, God could cause Bill Clinton to take political positions that Bill would not be inclined to take when he was president for the benefit of God's people and answer to the prayers of God's people. But that would not stop Bill from being immoral with Monica Lewinsky. That is, Bill has a personal life and he has a public life. And God gives him full authority to manage his personal life because that's where he has responsibility. It's Bill's responsibility to go to heaven. Right? But when God gave Bill authority over the United States, God reserves the right to interfere with his decision-making process in answer to prayer. And you can, I'm just curious, since the Bible plainly says to pray for all those that are in authority, is there anyone here that does that? Anyone that prays for those in authority? That's more than I thought. I thought it'd be about 1%, and it looks like it's about 40%. But not every day. How many of you more than once a month? Let me see those hands again. Still pretty good. Okay, still pretty good. I didn't think it'd be that many. Maybe that's why we still have freedoms in this country. So, if you follow these ideas, it'll help you understand why Calvin got confused about predestination. It's because he was looking at data about rulers and he extrapolated it falsely to the non-rulers. When what God said he could do is that he could arrange and put up and take down and you'd get the idea if God puts up rulers and takes down rulers that maybe everything that happens on planet Earth is his decision. But it's not true. You're the one that chooses what you eat at breakfast. God does not pick up the fork and swallow it down. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? That Calvin mis-extrapolated a true principle. It's true that God interacts with responsible persons. There is a way he does it in the church that should modify your behavior, perhaps. Um, so, I don't like the idea that I have a fan club, but I think there are a few people that really like to listen to me talk. I want to speak to that for a minute. It's not healthy. It's not good. 
we really can't afford in church to have favorite speakers. I think tonight Doug is speaking. Is that right? It really isn't good for Doug if you really have him as a favorite speaker. I don't fault Doug for that. I fault you for that. I might fault Doug for that, depending on what he says or does to make that happen. But let me get myself off of that hook. I'll just say, I hope you never believe me because I say something. I hope that you look at my data and you try to see whether it follows, like, like you look at how I got to my conclusion and you decide for yourself whether you should get to the same conclusion. I hope that's the way you listen to me. Because that way, I'm not responsible for your mistakes. I suppose I make some. What if I'm wrong about women's ordination? For sure, don't just believe me on it. It'd be a disaster. Romans 13, verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. It doesn't quite say resist God. It doesn't quite say that. What it indicates is that God ordained authority to exist. Do you know where God first ordains human authority over humans in the Bible? Well, yeah, in the Garden of Eden, there you might have, well, just outside of the Garden of Eden, I think maybe is where it happens, uh, where Adam is given authority over Eve, just outside of the Garden. But um, I need to go back and read Genesis 3 and see whether it's inside or outside, but whether... Maybe they're still inside because the snake is there, so it probably is still inside the garden. Anyway, so there you have one, but I was thinking of Genesis 9. Genesis 9, when they come out of the ark, that's when God says, if any man sheds man's blood, by man his blood should be shed. What's that? That is God establishing capital punishment for murder. God. So sometimes people seem surprised when they ask me if I believe in capital punishment and I say yes, and they look at me like, how could you believe in the Ten Commandments and believe in capital punishment? Oh, just listen. It's because the church is not the sword holder. That's the state. The church represses evil by teaching righteousness. The state represses evil by killing bandits or whatever way it chooses. I mean, the state represses evil. We'll get to that here in Romans 13. It, it goes into this very thing. But who established that principle in Genesis 9? That was God. God didn't say that if you kill a man, I'm going to kill you. He said if you kill a man, men should kill you. That's government. God established government on this planet because if there's no government here, then the earth would have become a place where the strong rule the weak. And that's terrible. Even communism isn't as bad as anarchy. You can hardly imagine where that goes. So God established government. Some of you are saying, why do you say the same thing three times? It's a bad habit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so okay. Well, I, like this has been recorded, so let me repeat what you're saying a bit. Okay. So the question is, what if government oversteps their authority 
And if God chooses kings, does he also write constitutions? Which is a good question. I would say to the second question first, no. That God gives men the authority to establish their own government. And our constitution very our constitution is very well written. It even mentions this point. Our constitution mentions that the people have the authority to make a constitution and to change a constitution. I, I, I like our constitution. Not that God inspired it or wrote it, but God organized things. We talked about this yesterday uh, with Roger Williams and otherwise to have a nation that was founded on some good principles. What happens if a nation uh, oversteps its bounds? Like what if Mr. D in the Philippines begins to inject anti-vax people with their uh, cheap vaccine there? That's overstepping his legal authority in the Philippines. The Philippine Constitution does not give him that kind of authority. I think as soon as someone oversteps their authority, that you are not obligated to obey, but then suddenly you end up in a situation where you really need to weigh your risks and opportunities. So for example, when Jesus was on trial, his trial was quite illegal. The way it was done was contrary to all principles of uh, trials in Israel. Really, it was badly done. Jesus could have stood up for himself there and demanded that the constitution of their nation be followed. He didn't. And I don't think that we ought... I'm going to give you a, a principle that I think relates to this and it relates to many other things. There's a big difference between A.T. Jones defending the right of freedom of conscience and I trying to defend my rights in court. So I mentioned yesterday that we were offered an exception. Were you here yesterday? Okay, good. So I'll review this for you and they'll be glad to hear it again. I mentioned that in 1888 that we as a church were offered an exemption to the Sunday law. The U.S. government said that Seventh-day Baptists, Seventh-day Adventists, and Jews could go to church on, on Saturday, and others would go on Sunday. And the government thought that that would be a good workaround and that that would make everyone happy. And they were quite surprised when the Adventist church said, no, that doesn't make us happy at all. But we said that we object to this law, even if it was a Sabbath law. We object not to the day, we object to the principle of forcing worship or regulating worship. That, that, was, that was our position as a church. It's a good position. But if I have a job and my employer demands I work on Sabbath, and I refuse to work on Sabbath and he fires me, for me to take my employer to court to defend my own rights is an entirely different situation. So Jesus said, when they strike you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. When they compel you to go a mile, go with them two. He said, resist not evil. And everything inside of us is to resist evil. It's to smite the smiters. 
It's to pay our due tax and not a penny more ever. It, it, what he said there in Matthew 5 doesn't match our principles very well. But what he was saying is that when they ask you to go a mile and you go with them twain, two, you're allowing them to take advantage of you. Dan, you gave me a document uh, yesterday. Well, of course, you gave me a lot of them. And uh, I tend to read slowly, believe it or not. And so I picked one of the small ones so I could possibly make some progress in it because you gave me like a year's worth of reading yesterday. Uh, let me read you this. In the world, the Christian will be slighted and dishonored and will consent to be least of all and servant of all. He will submit to be injured, to be despitefully used and persecuted, but wearing the yoke of Christ, he will rest, he will find rest unto his soul, and the yoke will not be galling. Signs of the Times, August 22, 1895. But none of you are taking notes, so you don't care about that. Did you, did you catch it? Maybe I'll review with you what it said. In my own words, it says that the Christian is going to allow himself to be treated badly. He consents to do latrine duty, to take the least least, to, to be in that position. It says that he will submit to be injured, to be despitefully used and persecuted. What we are inclined to do is the opposite of this. It's that heavy business of defending ourselves. And it's heavy what this passage says is the same thing I've been telling you before I read it to you. It's the same principle. It's that we are not responsible to guard our own rights. That selflessness is the principle that actuates us. Actuates, that's a 19th century word for motivates. It is selflessness is the principle that gets us going, that makes us move. And what Satan would like to do is to get us on to the duty of defending ourselves. If we defend our... Uh oh I think I'm four minutes over time. Is that true? Yeah. I'm just going to finish this thought and close because I just need to do it. Uh, the principle of authority, we need to recognize just authority and submit to it, but when there's overreach, we're not obliged to obey. I'm not obliged to obey my parents when they tell me things they don't have authority to say, to obey the government when it tells me things it doesn't have authority to say, to obey the church when it tells me things it doesn't have authority. But I do have some responsibility to use my good sense and think through consequences because not obeying my parents could have some consequences. Not obeying the government could have some consequences. Not obeying the church could have some consequences. I can think of real examples of all three of those. <laughs> so, so there are times when we submit to unjust authority for the sake of peace and effectiveness. That isn't, that isn't putting myself in bondage. I'm still a free man. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When Paul said, I make myself a servant of all, he wasn't saying that he suddenly loses his freedom. He means that he freely submits to be in that position for the benefit of gaining someone. 
Yeah, that's the right principle. Selflessness is the right principle. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would help us to have principles that match your own. I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.